0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you are new here, thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending us your ears, the only non renewable resource you've got. That, of course, is your time. I'm so grateful. I promise to give you a return tenfold. Today's entrepreneur is an Argentinian who has spent the last decade atoning for the sins of his past 20 years servicing the oil and gas industry. Martin Pochtaruc has 35 plus years of experience managing infrastructure and innovation across Europe and the Americas. Today, we're going to dig into the career path that led him to found a company many of you may be aware of. If you're career searching, you should certainly become aware of. It's called Helion, and they're based in Canada. they become one of the premier Bloomberg Tier 1 suppliers of solar panels to the United States. And I've long wanted to hear the story of how Helion is challenging the solar industry status quo. Martin's going to dig into it today, but he's also going to dig into what brought him to the point where he decided that he needed to atone for the previous career. Look, I hope that you're subscribed to Suncast. If you're new here, I hope that we earn your subscription because we've got more than 625 episodes just like this, digging into clean energy founders stories and startup advice to help you along your path to building a career with meaning. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we dig into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I have been in the solar industry for almost 20 years myself as many of you know, I've worked in the solar module manufacturing side of the business for nearly half of that, two different companies, two completely different applications. When I say that I understand the solar module side of the business better than any other, it's categorically true. And I've long wanted to better understand one company north of the wall, as we might say, that has bedazzled and and sort of confused many in the industry about kind of who they are, how big are they ever going to get? And uh, are they going to be able to compete and how and why? I am super ha- happy to have Martín on the show today. And without further ado, Martín Pochaluc, welcome to SunCast.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and, and with all your listeners.
0: Man, it's been a long time also since I've had the pleasure of interviewing someone else from Latin America. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you might be the first Argentine. I'm not sure 100% on that. Oh no! Not true. Alejo Nobody Lopez was on, so okay. you're the second. You're the second art <laughs> Time, but it's it's good company nonetheless, right? Um, uh, Alejo totally. from Next Tracker. So we're going to kick things off today with uh, a quote. I have rotating quotes on my desktop to inspire me, and there are ones that I literally have imprinted on my computer that give me this sort of daily dose of wisdom. So I'll share one, and then I'd invite you to share one as well as we kick things off. The first. Uh, I'll go with, is from Marva Collins, and it says, success doesn't come to you, you go to it. So, Martin, I will invite you to either opine on that one uh, as well as share a quote.
1: Well, you know, I, I think this is absolutely very true because basically you need to make your path. Yeah, Nobody's making it for you. But I was very lucky that my parents were very helpful growing up to pay for many things that I would I wouldn't have had access and many other kids didn't have access um but then you need to you need to do your part yeah it was very true
0: and martin you've you shared with me that you also have a quote that that you like it's uh...
1: which is a you know, very simple one and you know when you ask me of one I, I don't know I could not think of one fast enough <laughs> and uh, I would say you know the what was well, lighter uh, said and we all remember which is to infinity and beyond mm-hmm. and you know bes- besides you know the, this being silly about it. Um, what it means is that, you know, we need to continue growing, and we need to continue growing. Right. And, you know, I used it this morning, uh, was, you know, was picked up by Reuters, uh, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're planning on building uh, you know, a couple of more lines. And this morning, we were, you know, at a meeting discussing the design of, of what we call Minnesota Line 3. However, we're installing the replacement of Minnesota line one. So I, I use the, the, you know, line, you know, to line three and beyond. <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, just adopted it, right? Because of, uh, uh, basically it is um, while we're working on something, we all need to be planning on what comes next.
0: It's true. It's true. Well, we're going to start with something that you've been working on for more than a decade now. Uh, and I'll, I'll back into it through the, the meta question. How would you describe the problem at a high level that you've created Helian to solve?
1: With the purpose, with you know, with a purpose, right? So everybody talks about you know the company's mission and the company vision. And I think that there is a purpose that comes before all of that. Because you can you know look for a mission that is is a commercial ish type of, of sentence, you know, being you know, a reliable North American supplier, you know, all of these type of things that might not necessarily mean anything, but, you know, it means that you are there and, you know, and you are a supplier among others, but it doesn't mean much. But, you know, all starts with a purpose. And for me, you know, 13 years ago, when, when I started working from the idea to closing the financing to start up the company, and we're talking about, you know, March, April, 2010. Uh, the purpose comes from, you know, a, a, an Old Testament intention, and uh, that from from Hebrew it translates into, into what are we doing to make the world a better place? And it's called Tikkun Olam. So the concept of Tikkun Olam is is mainly religious, coming from from you know the Old Testament, but it's applied, and, and you know I was taught of it, but my then eight year old, uh, which, you know, what he came as he was learning about it is, you know, what are you doing that to make the world a better place? I don't know where to get emotional, <clears throat> but I can help it. I love it. Right? Because I, it is, it is a, a very strong thing when your kids come and ask you, right, what are you doing? to make the world a better place. And, uh, you know, believe me, I wasn't doing anything. (laughs) Besides, you know, uh, planting trees and little things that we all can do, I wasn't doing anything. And in fact, I worked for, you know, over 20 years, uh, manufacturing steel for oil and gas applications, right? So clearly I was on the polluting side and not on the solving the problem side. so the purpose of helium is the cumulam. The purpose of helium and You know, I I now hear it from very young employees, right? So last in the last two weeks, we shot we shot a company shot for us a series of little videos uh, to use on on recruiting of operators for the factories, and I heard it from an employee that has not been in the company more than six months, saying, you know, helping the world one solar panel at a time. And this young man is, is, is 22 years old. And when I heard him say it, made me realize that he's working.
0: Thank you. That's very beautiful. Uh, I remember when you first shared the concept of tikkun olam, I got goosebumps and, uh, and they're back. I've, I found an article that I'll share in the show notes. I want to read a little bit from it. It's from Brandeis University. And the heading is the world is broken. So humans must yes. Repair it. The History and Evolution of Tikkun Olam. It says, today, Tikkun Olam, and it talks about how before 19th century, it was a relatively obscure term, but today, Tikkun Olam, Hebrew for, quote, repairing the world is ubiquitous. Many Jewish American, uh, many American Jews consider it a cornerstone of their Jewish identity, a key reason that they're committed to making the world a better place. I encourage everyone to go read that because it's, first of all, a phenomenal article. And it, uh, and it speaks to what I believe is a core motivation, not only for myself, but many who have identified the growth of renewable energy as a way that we can contribute, a way that we can help to heal a broken world, a broken process. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that I get into all the time with my friend, Mark LaCour uh, over at OGGN, I love the guy, and he's a, a staunch advocate for healing the world, um, but very much in the OG oil and gas camp <laughs> by, by design <laughs> is that, you know, we we have everything that we currently look at and most things that we currently look at as modern amenities, thanks to our uh, ability as humans to harness fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so we're fools. To, <laughs> we'd be fools to say, oh, gosh, you know, uh, we like the oil and gas and those who proffered it uh, are sinners. Uh, the reality is. Everyone um, that I've met over the last you know, 20 years nearly who's been in the oil and gas industry, certainly who's turned towards renewables, mm-hmm. recognizes the place that fossil fuels have had in civilization and in improving uh, our station as, as, a, as a planetary system. And, and, and unfortunately, we, we held on to it longer than we probably should have.
1: And, and the, and the change, is, change is coming, right? And change is good. You see, you know, one of the largest funds investing in renewables right now is a Norwegian state-owned fund. Yeah, used to be called Stadt Oil. Yeah, right. And Statoil rebranded as Equinor to just because the name was not right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but where's the fortune that Equinor uses to invest on coming from? And it's basically the North Sea. Yeah. Oil and gas production and mainly gas. It's so true. So uh, uh, um, you know, there's no, there's no problem in recognizing where we come from, provided mm-hmm. you know we we find purpose, as as I did, you know, back in twenty early 2010 to start helium, right? So, uh, uh, and and the good thing is that it's taking on, yeah, it's taking on.
0: Well, with all that as context, for those who may be unfamiliar, would you give us the? condensed version, introduce yeah. us to Helion and why it's uh, maybe a, 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 a bit more extended than just saving the planet one solar panel at a time. Introduce us to Helion as a company and why it's going to help solve this problem that you've enunciated.
1: So Helion makes solar modules. A solar module is a glorified window that, you know, harness lights and creates electricity. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a glass with a frame pretty much like a window, but then it has an electrical circuit on it. So that is, is the layman's terms, simplest explanation of the product we make. However, we make it in a very highly automated manner. Uh, the manufacturing lines that we have, each of them is able to produce a solar module every 25 seconds. Uh, so, you know, lots of modules a day and You know, we started back in 2010, as I was saying, in Ontario, because Ontario had a feed-in tariff uh, that required modules made within the province. That program was never strong enough to guarantee the volume required to, you know, keep a manufacturing facility ongoing. And and, and everybody, you know, might remember many companies that were paying attention to the Canadian market then when the U.S. was, was very nascent. Many factories this set up and is Silfab out of um, the outskirts of Toronto, the place in Mississauga behind Toronto's airport, and now with factories in Washington State, and us in you know Northern Ontario, so Marie, in the Michigan Upper Peninsula border, with also you know a, a large factory in Minnesota that survived, and and we did that by selling into the U.S. market. So Helion, as I said, started in 2010. By 2014, we pivoted to sell into the US, the target of that moving into the US, which continues to be the company's target today is selling into projects with third party non-record finance. Why do we do that? And why do we, de- we did that is to, to basically compete within the approved vendor list of the lender you know, lending money to the project and or the tax equity uh, partners of the project. So you have the, you know, the, the uh, approved vendor list of the lender, the approved vendor list of the tax equity provider, the intersection of that has to contain you. And if it does, then you can sell to that project. So that was the the strategy, the commercial decision to to go into a market that requires you know, that bankability, product quality, uh, reliability, and then not just going into just competing on price in the open market. And that allowed us not only to continue making the product and selling it, but also allowed us to to grow. And, you know, I keep being asked, you know, why a small company out of the middle of nowhere, right? Uh, uh, can not only survive but grow in a, such a competitive market when you know many others ten times larger didn't make it. And and basically it is you know being bootstrapped all the way up to your neck. Right. So we are very thrifty. The first 10 years of, of the company we didn't have any debt, right? So there was not you know financial issues. And we pivoted this into becoming a US manufacturer when we got an invitation to take over an existing facility back in 2017 in Northern Minnesota. And that's the same location where we are today. So in 2018, we installed a new line where we call Minnesota line one. And in 2022, we installed, which I think right now still is you know, a few months after the newest manufacturing line there is in the US, little things like artificial intelligence detection of defects online. So there's no human touch at all. And we are replacing the line that we installed in 2018 by the end of September. So that line is being decommissioned right now. It's being you know, vacated right now so that we have the space ready.
0: I've highlighted and bolded and marked for, uh, for my team, and I'll, I would do so for the rest of you, something that Martin said that I've never heard anybody say, and I, I'm going to possibly slightly rephrase it, but uh, a glorified window that harvests light for electricity. I love that. Um, I've been in the industry for a long time, and that is the most simplified version of what a solar panel is I've ever heard. Props and kudos to you. I will be using that. I'll be stealing. That. Please. Yeah. Because,
1: you know, it, hmm. it, it, sometimes we're being asked, uh, you know, what we do, and we have to be simple enough for everybody to understand that. And also, we have to be, you know, silly or funny yeah. and, and allow us ourselves to laugh about ourselves before anybody else does. Yeah.
0: You know, I was just recently, we published uh, an episode recently with Yezin Taha at um, Nevados. And while he was answering this question, I said, could you stop a minute? I want to I rephrase this for you. Because he was going on about how their tracker is great for... Um,
1: uneven terrain.
0: Uneven terrain. Thank you. And, and I said, Yezin, nobody cares. If you're at a, a coffee shop talking to somebody who randomly asks you, like, what do you do? They don't know that we have a problem in the industry about uneven terrain. Try this one on for size and try this at RE plus. Somebody says, what do you do? Your answer, because they don't know Nevado's yet, and they don't know you probably is I've been working for the last 10 years to fix Solar's dirty little secret. Right? Yeah. Because the point is to get somebody to say, duh, tell me more. Yeah. Right? Right. And then he can go into the fact that basically we've been stripping fertile soil to grade and degrade the land to put solar on top of it. This sort of ironic reality mm-hmm. of how we build utility scale solar and his company is trying to fix that. And that's it simple. And I would argue anybody listening to this can leverage this, this very simple explanation. What do you do if you're developing solar projects? whatever, like yeah, I install glorified windows at harvest light for electricity,
1: <laughs> right? Yes. I manufacture them.
0: <laughs> I I sell them. I market for companies that do this, right? Like it's, Find ways to be intriguing, and I just—I just want to honor the fact that you have this this approach, this perspective to not make light of, but to lighten the fact, like lighten yes. it up and and make it interesting. Right? You mentioned that you guys bootstrapped the company, so I want to get into how you yes. funded the company. But before that, I'd like for you to brag a little bit about the next step that you're taking. Very recently, our friend Sophia helped you get this amazing story that was broke by Reuters about the next evolution, which you just referred to, line three. Talk about sort of the next jump in growth for Helian, And and then I want to back into how you've been funding this all
1: along. Yes, and I'm glad my wife was not invited to participate <laughs> because she will be criticizing, right? I've been married for 35 years. Yeah. so She'll be criticizing. Saying, well, you know, you take all the credit, but you know... Uh, <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm, you know as an entrepreneur, we are la- we are laughing with you, my friend.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm laughing because she's not here. Otherwise, we're very, very serious. That's right. That's right. Uh, exactly. Um, you know, we are at, and we will be in the next three, four months at 1.1 gigawatt mm-hmm. capacity with the installations of lines that we're working on right now. And the next step is to install... Two lines to to make one gigawatt more. So to go from one point one to two, you know, we always talk about the output. Um, we don't talk about nominal capacity, right? So when you install a line, sure, it's a five hundred megawatt line, but you don't work twenty four hours of the day. You know, people are not robots, so you have shift change, you have coffee break. So literally, you know, 90% utilization is already aggressive. So when you say you install a gigawatt of module capacity, actually you get 900 megawatts of modules out of it. So that's why, you know, we say we'll get to 2 gigawatts, not to 2.1, because it's, it's not true.
0: Congratulations. And that'll be in Minnesota as well. You're going to continue to expand in Minnesota. Correct. And I want to save so for a little bit down. later
1: the whole, like,
0: why Minnesota? I want to get into that in yeah, a whole section that we talk about.
1: Is there any other state in the country? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. As a Canadian, you're perfectly... As an Argentine Canadian, you're perfectly right yes. to ask that question.
1: <laughs> it's a, I, uh, I always you know laugh and make a joke um, because we're in the extreme northeast of the state. We're just outside of Duluth in what is called the Iron Range. Mm. So it's, it's very far up, yeah. but still south of the border. Mm-hmm so when when we are and I am with with officials with elected officials of the state or the governor or whoever it might be, you know they always say, um, uh, and I correct them because they say they are we used to say, you know we help we thank Helen for coming up, and I said, "No, no, coming down, yeah By <laughs> <laughs> like, coming down, we are not afraid of your weather because we actually live north of so the Earth. good,
0: yeah." Well, um, Martin, you've been a great partner to the state of Minnesota, but you weren't always in Minnesota. As you mentioned, you and Silfab really are survivors. And Silfab was our uh, OEM uh, partner in Canada when I was at Trina and we expanded to Canada for the same reason that Alien created a company uh, to take advantage of the Ontario uh, feed-in tariff. How did you get this thing off the ground? Financially speaking, talk to me about what it takes Financially, to stand up a solar module manufacturing plant, because today everyone is hearing um, that this and that company is uh, is opening up a manufacturing plant in the U.S. I'd love for you to talk about sort of what you understand to be true yeah. about what it really takes to do that. Just help people. Uh, no,
1: that's right. And, and again, you know, a, a 500 megawatt line, which will take you know 450 of modules coming out. The latest more most advanced technology today goes for, I would say 11 to 12 million. That's equipment. Right, and then, sure, if you lease a building, then you're not building it. So you're leasing the building, but you need equipment, you need com- a compressor for air, you need an um, HVAC system. So that's another, you know, one and a half, two million just to set the building, for it. So a 500 megawatt line, we are talking about for modules only we're talking about roughly, you know, let's say 14 million. So when you build a gigawatt of, of module manufacturing, we're talking about roughly 30, right 30 million, three, three zero. That's a lot of modules. But you know, once you have the equipment in, you need working capital. And to, to you know, be able to buy materials and, uh, uh, and make modules when your clients pay, uh, let's say, 20, 25% down, and then they want 30 day credit, right? On, on after delivery, you will need another 35, 40 million, 45 million of working capital.
0: Wow. Another right? 35 so, to 40.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of working capital to be able to, to buy, you know, cells, you right. pay them in advance glass you paid. So you paid most of your materials before they arrive to you at least 50% Mm -hmm. by the time they arrive on the other 50% 30 days after. So for a gigawatt of modules, again, you know, roughly 28 to 30 million of of investment and then 35-40 of working capital. The working capital is the easier part, if I can use that term easier, um, because you can have a credit line. Yeah, you can
0: factor it, essentially.
1: That's right. So, you know, a banking institution of sorts, um, whether it's a fund, which we use in our case, and we're very proud of it, and we have a great relationship with our working capital provider, and I'm not allowed to say anything different. But then the capex is something that, in most cases, you have to front. Yeah. So uh, uh, when we started the company uh, back in 2010, very simple... Uh, capitalization table, to owners, two founders, mm-hmm. um, we did it. You know, with with the you know slight help from the province of Ontario. So we did get you know a two and a half million loan and a million grant.
0: So three and a half million, two thirds of it being a loan.
1: So yeah, so that was came from the province. That was you know paid back, yeah. um, and uh, the rest um, it came from the you know, let's say family funding uh, from two individuals, myself being one of them.
0: The three Fs, friends, family, and fools.
1: (laughs) Right, we're no fools here. We (laughs) came with, uh, you know, eyes wide open and knowing what what it was. And we did not do a single equity raise until May of 2023. So the first external equity equity raise ever happened close May 11th of 2023
0: unbelievable how much did you raise in that round
1: um so the whole package uh was 170 million
0: seven zero or
1: 17 one one seven zero yeah 170 million for which the, you know the largest contributor um is uh, a fund new york and uh, houston based that's called orion infrastructure capital oic they were mentioned um, in the, the uh, Reuters yeah. article, and actually, you know, Reuters wanted to, to check with them that I was saying was true, and yeah. it is. <laughs> nice. And it was checked. It was yeah. fact-checked by Reuters. So Orion became an investor as well as uh, the lender.
0: Congratulations for going 13 years. Without having to take really outside <laughs> capital, that's yep. tremendous. And it sounds that's like right it right. sounds like for the extra gigawatt, if I'm doing the numbers right, it's about seventy mega seventy million US to stand up a gigawatt plant. Um, if you're conservative, then you raised about a hundred million extra. What's the extra hundred
1: million going to go to? So that paid the debt in part, by paid entirely. So part of that money paid entirely the the, the losses that we had um in between 2018 and 2021 right so 2018 was a bloodbath because we were a canadian producer and the trump administration imposed the 201 safeguard as you might remember so then the product made in canada had to pay duties and we had contracts and and we were losing money by supplying with every module we were just shipping money yeah Um, attaching a 10 bill to the back of it (laughs) That's right, exactly, with every pilot. And they were $20 bills, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and they, So we pivoted, so the, the, that, you know, catalyzed the investment. So yeah. in 2018, we became a U.S. producer. We understood that we had to become a U.S. producer to be on the side that, you know, the federal administration wanted, an offset with the U.S. product, U.S. made product, yeah. the Canadian product that we couldn't sell.
2: Yeah, makes
1: Because sense. of costs.
0: Are, are you comfortable uh, with disclosing how much, or in a range maybe, you personally invested? A lot of folks might, I think they'd benefit yeah. from it. And as an entrepreneur, I'm just genuinely curious.
1: Yeah, certainly, and, and this is something that the investment bankers are are <laughs> using, right? Totally. Uh, as we are working to to raise another twenty five million before the end of the year, mm. before the calendar year twenty twenty five. So when you look at um, what was raised by the fa- by the founders in that period of time, we are talking about roughly fifty five to fifty seven million dollars US, yeah. right? So it's not Canadian dollars; it's US dollars. Man,
0: that's tremendous.
1: So, you know, I always say that, you know, 10 years ago, I was 25 years younger uh, and I mean it because basically this is what the solar coaster does to you.
0: Yeah. And to to the chuckle moment we had earlier um, of your wife saying you always take the credit. Any entrepreneur knows exactly what you're saying.
1: Of course, because basically you're you're betting the farm. That's right. The family farm, right on the cows and the dogs and everything. Yeah. No, not the dogs. Work.
0: Bet everything but the dogs. Right, <laughs> Martin. You'd never bet the dogs.
1: No, it's true. I might bet my kids, but not the dogs. Yeah.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna use that as a way to segue. Actually, I think that's a great pl- uh, place for us to segue to kind of uh, to your background, your family, and how you grew up. And I want to start with uh, something that you said to me that I'll never forget. You, uh, it's burned into my mind um you said uh, i always remember faces but never names unless it's a dog i always remember dogs tell me about your affinity for dogs
1: well i grew up in a small town uh in argentina where you know dogs were loose on the street. Yeah. so you know you have I mean, my parents had 3 dogs right and i was given my first dog that was my companion when i was 5 years old and i was told you need to look after him clean after him feed him mm-hmm. And, you know, in fact, when I started grade one, I was walking to school and he walked me to school every day and then ran back home. And when I was coming out of school, he was waiting for me at the corner, just sitting at the corner, wagging his tail.
0: That's a classic, classy Uh, story right there.
1: It is, but you know uh, what? He was a Jack Russell.
2: Oh, lots of energy.
1: Super clever, and he would come with me to my piano lessons for twelve years, right? <laughs> and, and and lay down under the piano, yeah. and then he he went everywhere with me. Yeah. So I I grew up knowing you know again you know from a, being a kid everybody's dogs' names, even if I didn't know their family name, right? And to this point, because I, I do walk uh, my dog and friends, so you know if. A, Generally, I'm looking after other people's dogs, um, because we can, we have a lot of space. And if I'm not looking after other dogs, when I go for a walk in the morning, I pick up, you know, a Labrador from across the street and a boxer from around the corner, and I take them all for a run. Oh, no way. Um, you like to and run. If you, yeah. And, and if you ask me, you know, what, what the, family name of the boxer. I know the owner's name Ron, but I have no idea what his wife's name is or what the family name is. Wow. I just go and pick up Kyla. Kyla is my friend. That's beautiful.
2: <laughs> mm.
0: You mentioned growing up. Thank you for that. That's really beautiful. You mentioned growing up in Argentina. I know that you were in Buenos yes. Aires. Take us back to that to that period of time because I feel like a lot of, particularly North Americans, probably aren't very familiar with the epic of time that you grew up in Argentina. Talk about what was it like um, for you and your family in Argentina? And growing up, uh, I presume as Latinos typically are, was it a close-knit family? And talk a bit about the nature of that family that led you into your, your schooling and career choices. I'll let you just run with that.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you. So my, my dad, I mean, who you know passed away um, seven weeks ago, right? So my dad died at almost 94. Wow. And he was at work until two days before dying at almost 94. Wow. Um, he was an entrepreneur and he started a company. So my, my all four of my grandparents were immigrants. So Argentina is very similar to the US, very similar to Canada in the sense that most families are you know, coming from immigration, unless you're First Nations, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, and, a,
0: and a huge influence from uh, from Italy and Germany in particular, thanks to World War II, right? Yes,
1: and, 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 and Spain, right? Uh, uh, so, you know, Argentinians, around 55% of Argentinians are from Italian ascent. So that has you know, changed our language to the point that we speak Spanish with a very strong Italian accent. So I'm I'm a rare Argentinian in that sense because I have a zero Spanish or Italian blood. So my my uh, grandparents on my father's side, uh they came from what now is is uh Belarus, but you know they were Ukrainian from origin. So my my last name Pashchurok is an Ukrainian last name. So they were Ukrainian Jews and they went to Argentina in the late 1920s. Uh, my dad was born uh, in Argentina, being the youngest, but you know the the rest of his siblings came from from Eastern Europe, uh, being you know little kids, and then uh, on my mother's side, my grandparents were French, and my mother was also born in Argentina. Uh, they they went to Argentina as as just you know a young uh, married couple, yeah. Um, in the late 1920s, um, so Basque. French, so very hard-headed uh, on my mother's side, and then I have heard the southern French, right? It, it is on, on the, the Spanish border. The yeah, on the Spanish border. Just for on people the who country. aren't familiar, it's yeah. <laughs> on the, so the, the Basque country is on both sides of the border. Is on the French side and on the Spanish side. Um, you know, Basques uh, they don't want to say that they are Spanish they're or independent. they're just they're just Basque. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, then uh, um, you know, I I grew up in a in a Family, um, you know, being my, my my mother being a Roman Catholic, my father being um, a Jew, uh, we grew up with no religion whatsoever because they both respected their origins. But my mom having having attended, you know, nuns' school from mm-hmm. grade one to grade twelve, uh, she was anything but Catholic. By yeah. that point, of course, Not most people. But you know, the the scars on the back of her hands to prove it. Yes, exactly. So. Uh, uh, Now, my both of my grandmothers uh, became really good friends. And, you know, my friend grandmother was the one uh, cooking, um, uh, you know, the the Jewish festivities meals uh, for me growing up. So I I grew up in a very integrated, very easygoing um, environment. Again, I grew up in a small town. I didn't grow up in Buenos Aires. I was sent to Buenos Aires for high school. So my parents with my dad being an entrepreneur, very hard-nosed. I was raised being told day after day that, uh, I was no, not doing well enough mm-hmm. that I had to work harder. Uh, that was never as good as my brother, and yeah. uh, my mm-hmm. brother to this day, you know, hates that. Uh-huh. Um, and continues to, to treat me like I'm seven years old oh, yeah. because of that, out of guilt. Right. But I, you know, on, on when I finished grade 11. I was the second highest average on the entire school, 2,000 boys, because I was sent to, to you know, a, a particular school. And my average was 97.75%, right? And uh, I came all happy to my parents' home with my award. And what did my dad say? You couldn't be the first one, not even in this. Like, he didn't say congratulations or anything. So I grew up knowing that I have to work harder. And and then I went to work for a multinational where you know you're never told you're doing good things. You're only addressed to be corrected. Mm. Right. So that is is the world where I'm coming from, yeah. right? One of 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 continuous struggle to do better. And that marks you, right? And believe me, I can talk about this because I've been doing therapy for the last seven years. <laughs>
0: i'm so glad you brought that up i was i was making a note to ask this question
1: Uh, (laughs) you know i'm an argentinian so Argentinians are neurotic so uh uh, argentina is the country with the highest level of of psychologists in this whole world Mm -hmm. because everybody does therapy (laughs) he's like woody allen if you've seen woody allen movies Mm -hmm. every argentinian is woody allen that's amazing
0: (laughs) well let me let me pause there actually and uh, and then we'll get back into the background story. What specific actions as a founder and now CEO of a now multinational have you taken to not be such a hard ass on your team?
1: Oof! Uh, it takes me a lot of work um, because I do it, and you know, I'm,
0: I'm, a- I'm yeah. asking for a friend.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm, I'm I'm very thankful that I have um, a team that contains me in that sense. I'm being told by everybody that since we've done group therapy and I'm not joking we have done group therapy group therapy, group therapy wow. as a management team and we started this in 2019 so it was pre-pandemic just to 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 ensure that you know that we can talk about everything and you know we started working on who we all are individually, yeah. and how we better complement each other. And you know, the result of this is that we have a, an extremely good working relationship, extremely open when everybody supports everybody, mm. right up, um, which is great. And I'm told, right every time, the you know. Uh, mr Hyde comes from my doctor jekyll yeah right uh, <laughs> i'm told i'm told to, gotcha. to go to my corner yeah. right and think about my words uh because i wasn't before and and that was in this day and age where everybody has grown being told good job even when it wasn't a good job right yeah. you have to be cognizant of of the expectations of everybody um, from the management point of view, and I was always extremely critical and extremely harsh, yeah, uh, to the point of being abrasive. Mm. And I can I can yes. identify with that. And then, then I if I you know had to learn to to think twice to not open my mouth to say don't what, say exactly what
0: you're thinking when you're yes. thinking it. Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. So that has been a change for me. Yeah. From my background, right? So um, there are other places Latino. Yes. There are other places on earth where that is common. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, being um, you know, I grew up in a family of Russian Jews where, you know, basically what you say, well, what does that mean? Is well if you know because everybody is is closer, if you know an Italian family and they're very loud, Mm -hmm. we were the same but louder.
0: Yeah competitively loud. But Yes. <laughs> Your family competition is
1: loudness.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: It is. Yeah. And then everybody's hugging everybody and telling everybody what to do. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's uh, uh, the, the cultural, my cultural background. Right. So yeah. I, uh, I,
0: I can appreciate. So being a Southern, it's also a family sport uh, yes. that my wife whose family mostly comes from a kind of a different culture, but still from the South um, a little bit further North father came from Ohio. Like, um very reserved and she was in culture shock hanging out with my family <laughs> very for sure um but one of the things that i appreciate about my family and then also my having spent so many years in Latin America and I, and I see this in my um my uh my eastern European friends as well the capacity to follow multiple conversations at one time yes is amazing and it's a skill because that can be learned you have to
1: give an opinion on everybody yeah yes
2: yeah
0: anyway we i digress um i look forward to talking more about that um in in one of our three conversations when i see you uh when i finally meet you in person uh hopefully in vegas so i have a question for you that i i'm eager to learn the answer for how many languages do you speak
1: properly uh we'll say five Right. five so languages because, uh, yes okay because I, I grew up can you can you I... te-
0: uh, talk tell me about them in the order that you learn them
1: I learned Spanish and French simultaneously growing up, right? Because of, uh, my, uh, my grandmother widowed uh, just a couple of weeks after I was born. So she lived with my parents and she was the person because were, my parents would go to work. So the person that actually raised me literally in all senses, right? And, and the, only, the only one picture that I have in my night table is from her, right? So my grandma raised us and we spoke French. So French was the language inside of the house, Spanish was the language outside of the house. So many of us that grew with immigrant parents and grandparents, we learned the language that they spoke to us. So, uh, and then I was sent to to school in French, right? So the school I went to uh, was in French and in Spanish, right? So courses were in French, courses were in Spanish. So I grew up speaking those two when I was in grade seven, I had to pick up a third language to learn in school right. and, you know, most kids would tell their parents and the parents did choose English. Right. Well, I didn't tell my parents, I I chose it myself and didn't tell them anything. So, uh, and they weren't very interested in, in what I was doing anyway, so I could <laughs> choose and get away with it. Your dad so was I an entrepreneur. Por- <laughs> so, right. so exactly, uh, I chose Portuguese. Portuguese. Which, in Argentina, you know what you learn yeah, right is what they speak in Brazil, so right. let's call it the language of Brazil. Portuguese say that it's a different thing mm-hmm. um, correct And when you know how to, when you know the grammar, and you know I studied at the time where you know we were drilled on grammar um, um all the way to grade twelve, so when you know the grammar of Spanish and French. Portuguese is very simple to walk so, in the well, park
0: at that point, yeah.
1: Yes, it is. So, yeah. and that's why I chose it. I yeah. was, I was. You Plus, know, nobody will was ever need English, it. I heard you say. Well, it's it's when I was a kid, and again, you know, go back to the mid '70s. there were two two forces in the world, right? And when you know, in the heights of the Cold War, right, there was you know English and Russian, right, as languages around the planet, and. You know, I studied Russian, right, so I studied Russian, I cannot say that I speak it, but I studied Russian to be able to read, right because books in Russian were much cheaper than books in English or any other language because the Soviet Union made that available right. for everybody in the planet outside of North America, right, and that was the I didn't way know that. to yes, well, because you were up here uh, yeah. <laughs> right. It's true. So uh uh, so I learned you know Spanish, French, Portuguese to that point. Then I studied university, I studied physics, and um by the third year the books were in English or in Russian.
2: Oh wow, in university were
1: not in university. So the books were, you know, when when you were you know beyond the third year, Mm -hmm. the books were not in Spanish. Uh so you had to resource to the books that they were sold mm-hmm. in either English or Russian. I didn't mm-hmm. speak either. So the first year, my parents you know, were always well off, right? My parents mm-hmm. were wealthy, so yeah. uh, they had someone buy books in Paris. And this is I'm talking about 1983, 84. So yeah. it, FedEx didn't exist, right? Yeah. So how do you get them, right? So they got somebody to bring them to to the French Ministry of Foreign Relations and, and send it to Argentina in you know in, with the with the you know embassy staff wow. and you know and my parents were ashamed of pulling that favor but I had for that year the books that I needed for school but they told me you need to learn English immediately right. so I started at age twenty one I started learning English right and uh, I basically it was going every day for an hour, uh five days a week, um uh, to a place where you know outside of North America you have this oh you know, lots of yeah places mm-hmm. where you go to learn a language. So I I you know this was this was a British school that had graduates from Oxford that they would be changed every two years so they never had the opportunity to learn Spanish. So they could only speak to you in English, and that's how you know I learned English yeah. in an accelerated fashion, so that I could use the the English books. But you know, uh, every theorem because I studied physics, every theorem that has a name if you read it in English it has a different name if you read it in Russian, because basically oh, wow. they were parallel, you know, studies and, and schools about things. So I yeah. I learned I studied Russian for three years. At the same time, I was studying English so that I could have alternatives, right, on, on what book to read. And particularly because books in Russian were, you know, a third the price as the books in English were.
0: Yeah, I just want to put a pin in that for a second. It's such a classic entrepreneur trait as well. You've studied two different languages at the same time that you were in university so that you could have alternatives. Yes, <laughs> Yes. Well, I just love that. I mean, yeah. it makes you such, I'm sure it makes you <laughs> just such a shrewd businessman too.
1: Uh, then, you know, let's say English, I probably learned that Russian, you know, I didn't use it then, mm-hmm. so I didn't use it until I was working after university. Yeah. Uh, that uh, You know, used a little bit, but let's say we have Spanish, English, sorry, Spanish, French, Portuguese, and English yeah. at that point. Then, you know, four years after I started working, I was transferred to northern Italy mm-hmm. for work uh, as part of a takeover team. Uh, so I was literally parachuted into a, a you know four thousand employee factory yeah. where everybody spoke Italian period. Yeah. This so, is
0: uh, this is still for Algoma Steel, the company he went, went to work This
1: with. was for or Tenaris. This? So the first 15 years of, of work, I worked for the Argentinian multinational. Right. Tec- the yeah. Tenar- te- te- kids is the mother company. Tenaris is, is Tenaris. the company specifically okay. that was paying my salary. And uh, then I had to learn Italian. Right. So my wife, we had a, we had a, a toddler at that point. So my wife uh went to university to learn it i mean she's a mathematician so it's a very methodical person Mm. but i like just learn it by listening and repeating right so I, i i had to work in italian i had to write read and speak um so within three months i was in amazing
0: amazing so french spanish portuguese english italian and then reads fluent russian can handle
1: I, I read really, it. I mean, I I, I speak it like Tarzan, right? <laughs> I cannot conjugate verbs.
0: That's like my <laughs> Um I, I thank you. That's actually so. I love how uh, this gets us to the point where you're working for this multinational in Italy and effectively creating products for the oil and gas industry. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you, thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know I can hardly believe it myself, <laughs> but that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Before we jump into the career path you went down, what career path did you not go down but always thought you would? Now, bear in mind, you've already shared with us that you effectively studied as a quantum physicist.
1: Yes, so uh, uh, I didn't want to be an academic, right? Mm. So uh, uh, that was very clear. I was the first in my cohort to graduate mainly because I wanted to get the hell out. Mm-hmm. Right. I, by the fifth year yeah. into it, I realized this is not going to go to do for a living. I need to get out. So I you know, worked faster, yeah. more hours a day, um, to actually finish my thesis, defend it, and run away. Right. So I, I mm-hmm. didn't want to be an academic. Yeah. Um, so that's the path I didn't take. After, after that, I would say things happened to me. Mm. So I I was changed the first 15 years that I worked for this Argentinian multinational I I changed of job most years you know every every year I would be called to do something else yeah. every single year right yeah. so I I didn't have any time to get bored about anything because before you know I was comfortable I was thrown into a different situation Yeah I I think that everybody
0: has this moment in their career where they get to take a path left or a path right Yours in particular could be said that it um, denied an existence of a product along the lines of like computers won't work and uh, the internet will never scale. Um, When you said no to DuPont, can you just share a brief anecdote about the choice you made in career coming out of college?
1: You know, it was mainly my understanding of the product, right? So uh, uh, as a young man, I I used, you know, I saw cars made out of steel and fridges and you sure. know everything around everybody yeah. is made out of steel and you know indexes of of growth of country are based really? on the you know pounds of steel per sure. person uh sure it's victorian right it's a victorian industry
2: yeah
1: right so what did i know about lycra not much besides okay. you know seeing you know jane fonda doing uh, aerobics
0: lycra like so, spandex
1: they're right. Yeah. So I, I don't know, it was just having no ignorance and I had to make a decision. Right. So I got two offers and I had 48 hours to reply, but I had to defend my thesis within a week. So I yeah. was kind of. One was you know, a steel company stressed. and the other was One
0: it, DuPont bu- helping yeah. on building Lycra.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I'm lucky enough. It wasn't, it wasn't. Uh, um, Bill Gates. Yeah, well, or anything else that I had no idea what it was, yeah. right? Because I, I basically, I did it out of a of, of false sense of mm-hmm. uh, uh, certainty mm-hmm. of, yeah. well, you know, the oil and gas uses this product, you know, they can not be wrong. Right. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> you,
0: so you went to work for uh, this major multinational in Argentina, and within a short time, you got called to be the global marketing manager. Um, you said you'd switched, ro- switched roles, but that gave you your first real international view of how business yes. worked. Can you take me from that point forward to sort of tying your career to energy and uh, and then bringing that part of your career to a close?
1: I went from being product knowledgeable to, to using my knowledge to direct a marketing team on how to better Sell how to better go into different markets, mm-hmm. and then the the company was growing internationally, and I was being part of it. Yeah. So, the, the mergers and acquisitions part came in, the, the trade cases right came in, whether it were trade cases in Europe, yeah. trade cases in the US. So, I started being exposed to you know becoming a local manufacturer to be able to close markets to your use and things like that, and then you know move to the US to set up. US manufacturing capacity or Canadian manufacturing capacity. And that's how I ended up in Canada because my wife's, you know, by then we had another, another kid mm-hmm. and that 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 was born when I was working in Houston. Uh, and, you know, we really needed to live in one place because that was, you know, when you work in M&A you're traveling most of the time. So uh, my wife in the second pregnancy was asked uh, if she was married or not because I never went to any controls. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know the doctor didn't know if there was yeah. a father around. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, that brought us to Canada. I took a position mm-hmm. managing the supply chain for this company in this country because I needed to get out of M&A right. to be- basically help raise my own kids yeah. and dogs. We had three dogs then. took his three dogs. Then in 2004, I was transferred to Eastern Europe mm-hmm. and to Romania, and, and the family decision was not to go um so you know this company is very shrewd if you say no to a transfer you are dead so i had right. to find another job and before resigning i did get another job at a canadian company called Algoma steel that produces steel right. for you know the usual applications cars and, and appliances and bridges um and beams yeah so i worked for them for five years part the last two years for the company that bought it, which mm. is about an Indian conglomerate called SR. Mm. And for two years, from June 2009 to the end of May, 2000, sorry, from June 2007 to the end of 2009, May, so it's 12 months I worked out of London doing international business development for them on steelmaking.
0: How did you become aware of the opportunity in renewables in Canada that pulled you back from this opportunity in London
1: and effectively
0: uh, launched what we now call Helion.
1: Renewables, And, you know, it was the moment, it was it we're coming, you know, on the end of the financial crisis, but nobody knew it was the end. So mid 2008 to mid 2009 was the financial crisis. The Ontario government came up with the Green Energy Act to create jobs in the energy transition, right? And it required, manufacturing, and I'm a manufacturing person. So I thought, you know, I had to do something, I didn't have a job, right, because I, I left this Indian conglomerate after two years, i literally run away after, you know, I, I did the time that my contract called for. And I looked into manufacturing, and you know, I look into what investment I could make, because I, I got a pretty penny out of mm-hmm. that transaction. So uh, 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 this is where you know, the idea of manufacturing solar models came.
2: Did you
0: start, Helien, with the idea of only focusing on the Canadian market?
1: If I think what I was thinking at that time, I thought the entire market and Canada were going to be what Europe was back in 2010, a powerhouse of solar installations, because basically the... The German Indeed. feed-in tariff as
0: an example. Yeah,
1: that's an example, right? So why wouldn't have been the same, and, and never happened, right? You know, Canada's market continues to be under three hundred megawatts a year, right? Is is not even one percent of the American market.
0: And you started the company you mentioned earlier with a co-founder. Can you talk about the decision to start it with someone else, and and how that has evolved?
1: He was my boss at Stilquill. He was the CEO of Algoma Steel when I was the you know VP business development. And we were, you know, friends and neighbors. So we lived, you know, two houses from each other and our kids grew up together. I talked to him about us and, and you know he continues to be my, my business partner. And by the way, he's the CO of Brookfield Private Equity. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's he's the COO of one one of the largest private equity Teams uh, in the world and the largest in Canada. What's his name? Denis Trucot. So it's Denis, the French way is with one end.
0: Martin, as you began the journey of raising capital, standing up a manufacturing business, you and Denis had to think through the fact that the manufacturing piece of the business is sort of closer to the bottom of the smile curve, low margins, difficult to compete, increasingly commoditizing sector of the industry. And you're operating in Canada where there may or may not be a runway um, that, that sort of will justify the millions in expense into a long-term business. So I want to sort of put us put us back in that time in history. What assumptions did you all have to challenge in that first year or two
1: of starting the business? You know, let's go back to, you know, the 2010 to 2014 period of time. Uh, where U.S. demand was rather very small. Mm-hmm. So we started manufacturing in September 2010, uh, and that was a period where Germany, Italy, Belgium were pulling every module that was made in the planet. Actually, you know, think about that. We started manufacturing in Ontario and actually exporting to Europe. So that was our first market. You know, the first, I would say, six to nine months of manufacturing, mm-hmm. modules were sh- shipped from here to Hamburg, to Antwerp uh, uh, and to Genoa uh, for installations in Europe until the Ontario market actually started developing mid-2011. So from 2011 to 2014, Ontario was installing, you know, enough uh, within the domestic content requirement that those countries had to absorb um, the capacity of our factory, but what we knew, but by early 2014 is that, that that domestic content was going away. Mm. Uh, the domestic content was contended at um, the World Trade Organization and the Canadian federal government told the provincial government that has put together that requirement to shut it down. So we knew we had you know, a bit of a runway for a couple of years because actually contracts for the Ontario Feeding Tariff uh, were installed all the way to the end of 2017. However, we needed to move elsewhere, and that's when we started working supplying modules to projects in the U.S. with third-party non-recourse finance. So lenders will have their own independent engineering companies to approve the hardware. So, uh, and then you know the the second. Piece to that is that these projects under already, you know, using investment tax credits had tax credit suppliers. So there were two, two lenders, if you want to, or two, two stakeholders analyzing the bankability of the product, the lender and the tax equity supplier. So by doing that, we never competed in the open market just on price. But we went to compete within the approved vendor list of the lender and the tax equity supplier and the intersection of those two. So the list was never too long, and that allowed us to carve a niche, right that uh, those are the the clients that you know many of them we continue selling to ten years after. so. It's masterful the way you just answered that question. Thank you.
0: I said, "What challenges did you have? What assumptions you have to challenge?" The assumption that Helian had to challenge was that you were, as a module manufacturer, forced to compete on price alone. You're forced to be Correct. a commodity, right? And I, I circled, underlined, and highlighted as you said it in the outset that you survived by selling. Into the US market targeting projects with third party non recourse course finance in order to compete in the AVLs of lenders and/or the tax equity partners. Correct. The under the question in my mind and probably others, how, when, where? Like how did it become clear to you that was a key Strategy? Can you put me in that? It in the, was a difficulty to get it
1: right. So nothing is easy. Nothing in life is easy. We you know learning to walk is not easy. You know, teething and getting teeth from your gum is not easy, right? So everything in life for humans is not easy. So when you look at okay, what are the barriers of entry into a certain portion of the market, mm-hmm. and you you know sweat it through. Uh, to get in, then you say, okay, this is not for everybody, yeah. right? You know, having modules do 2,000-hour dump heat. Dump heat,
2: yeah.
1: uh, You know, testing is not for everybody. I and mean, you think back 2013, 2014, right. you had to have a well-defined bill of materials with the right encapsulants, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have a high-quality product, Right, that is able to sustain reliability. That now is is a, is a bit more understood, uh, and there's a bigger group of people within it. That's what allowed us to get into the smaller portion of the market. Yeah, you know, our first qualification was was with a Japanese bank, Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, for a series of projects for a for a fund right and that brought you know Rabobank and whoever else and you know and you start adding qualifications and you know for an engineered product right being able to to have it approved right allows for companies your clients to engineer the projects do the permitting with your product in it right so it's a way of, of forward selling, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that you will achieve it if your price is not correct, right? But if you have the product, it is approved by the lender, actually you are making the life of your client simpler. And, you know, you still need to do many, many things, but you know, if the tax every the pr- supplier approves it, partner approves it, and the lender approves it, then it becomes just a, a you know, when do you need it, how many modules, you know, how many megawatts and, and you know, and, and the other portion that yeah. we started doing, uh, and that's why, you know, we call ourselves a, a you know, customer first supplier, is that we're very easy to deal with, right? Yeah. So we're all accessible, you know, our cell phones are accessible. We're in the same time zone or, you know, within East and West Coast time zones. We're yeah. not on the other side of the Pacific Ocean right for decisions you can get to the decision maker within one phone call or an email and two hours right yeah. so we'll respond to our clients same day there's yeah. not you know the decision maker that will give you the response during the night so you respond in the morning you work for you no know, asian companies yeah. you know how that goes that right look. there's always a point pointing saying, why didn't hear you know the, this person from you know whatever country didn't respond you need to wait another day. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't happen to us. And the other one is that we, we have a you know, very well-built logistics team that not only takes care of bringing the components to make the modules, but we supply the module just in time to Project Site. Yeah. We okay. do that. We become part of the construction team of our clients.
0: I'm going to pull the thread here on what I normally sort of would call as a cat as a section how you've stayed relevant amidst Mm -hmm. heavy competition and downward price pressure one be easy to build with you you enunciated that the other build your logistics supply chain so that you can be nimble and you know a lot of folks to get scale target the utility scale market you did it in a slightly different way but nevertheless went after the utility scale market a lot of small manufacturers avoid it because it's a bloodbath on price and they need to maintain margins. So they go after uh, CNI, which they learn is incredibly long sales cycles and full of liars that will never sign purchase orders. Um, so they resort to the residential sector. <laughs> Can you talk to me about the decision of where to play, which impacts the size yeah. of module you make and, uh, and everything. And it in, impacts what sell you buy, how you may make it you know, what equipment you buy. It's a complex totally.
1: balancing. But, out. You know, the, the, in terms of equipment, you know, we, we design our own manufacturing lines, right? So we have within our product, enge- pro- product and process engineering teams. So there's a team for product engineering and a team for process engineering. And, you know, when we installed the 2018 line, um, we hired the chief engineer from the, equipment supplier to come work with us. And, you know, we have a team and we design our own manufacturing lines and buy equipment from five different suppliers and then do the integration. We do that in-house. And our manufacturing lines are flexible to be able to work from M6, M10, and G12 cells, all size of modules. Because we are prepared for a market change, right? So one of the things that we always said and we talk about this already is that you have plan A, B, C, and D. And one of them will work, but you are sure that plan A will never work. That never, you know, the first one never, that never does. So you need alternatives. We never went into the residential market and still do not. Mm -hmm. um, Mainly because working capital limitations. So, you know, we're a small company and that has allowed us to survive, as you said. However, okay, how do you, what do you go after the issue with the residential market is that besides a couple of very large integrators, you know, the Sunruns of, of the world, mm-hmm. the rest of the market is managed by distribution and distributors have a long payment period or a an aspiration to do so. And our competitors, of Asia, allow them to get away with it. So, you know, we sell with a prepayment and payment at a maximum 30 days after delivery, besides or inside the approved credit of the client under the receivable insurance. So we sell with receivable insurance. We have to have receivable insurance, and we sell within it, within its limits. Distribution wants to pay 60 days after receipt. Right. uh, And no prepayment. Zero down, net 60 and we were never able to afford that, So that was what created right, the limitation itself. So we never went after that market because we couldn't afford it. That is, I, I, I'm loving this as a clinic on
0: strategic thinking about where you can. <laughs> but where sometimes you can. there's no strategy. Just
1: life limits you, right? That's true. <laughs> However,
0: I'm, I'm, argu- I'm arguing here that, that you made a very conscious decision about where mm-hmm. you can and can't compete. And far too often, we see entrepreneurs try to go after everything, right? There's value in saying no and, yes. uh, and knowing where you can and cannot compete, where you should and should not expend resources. Now, you've done a couple of things that are counterintuitive. One, um, not approaching the residential market at all. Two, deciding to build a manufacturing plant and then double down on that manufacturing plant. In Minnesota. Yes. Let's talk a bit about how that came about and your decision to stay committed to Minnesota in light of what I'm certain could have been um, an abundance of opportunity from a tax advantage perspective in other states that are courting Mm -hmm. manufacturing right now. Talk about the sort of first how how Minnesota came into view. You you mentioned it a little bit earlier. but um, And then the sort of the relationships and the the decision to double down.
1: Back in 2015, we started selling into the Made in Minnesota program, and that might have been 5 6% of annual revenue. But it was a very profitable niche, right? And modules for that program had to be finished in the state. Uh, so it was part of the operation. So we make the laminates in our Ontario facility and then ship them to Minnesota and have them finished there by a, by a manufacturer that was already there, and it was called... Yeah. Uh, Silicon Energy was in Montana, Minnesota. So Mm -hmm. we did that with them 2015, 2016. In April 2017, I was called and told, This factory is closing. Do you want to take it over? We did. Within three weeks, uh, we had the company incorporated, the employees rehired. And we started May 1st, we started operating that line Mm. uh, because it was a profitable uh, piece of the business. So we We took it over. So, uh, you know, uh, I generally don't say no to opportunities, right? You have mm. to learn where to say no. But to opportunities, I always say yes and look into it. And, and you figure you, it out. Yeah. You, you figure it out. And if it is, you know, profitable or, or not has it, the ability to become profitable, then you do the work and, and, and grab it and run. So the state gave us alone, um, you know, half of it uh, forgivable, to install a new manufacturing line, a modern manufacturing line in that same building in 2018. So we did. And then in, during the pandemic and in early 2021, we had the possibility of getting $12 million, uh, 11 from the state, one from the county to build a new building to host Minnesota Line 2. So yeah. we we were I would say we are very grateful and and we have worked with the state to ensure that there is economic diversification and economic development in an area of the country that is rather depressed in terms of of new jobs.
0: Speaking of depressed, did you go, I mean, this is also in the same time zone um, where opportunity zones around 2019, 2020 became, uh, they were written into or rewritten into the, the tax code. Did that play a part in um, the in the math? Uh,
1: no, <laughs> no, wow. really, okay. right? Not really. Uh, you know, we we operate on both sides of the border. The can, the U.S. company is owned by the Canadian company, which is okay. a private yeah. uh, company. Um, it's called a you know a, a, a Canadian controlled private corporation. So okay. it's it's actually is it's tax advantageous to keep it that way? Yeah, uh, for us and you know. We manage the U.S. business in the U.S. The Canadian mm-hmm. company is the one that manufactures. Also, have a Canada expert and sells yeah. direct to clients mm-hmm. in the U.S. And that—that that is what again uh, there is a um, yeah. a very good tax lawyer that is involved in the file. Um, you know, we work with one law firm in the U.S. mainly for all of business and tax uh, issues, and uh, um, it has been uh, um, you know a very very well well advised, let's say.
2: Yeah,
0: so you know one of the things that goes into building a big, big, big business, especially one that provides lots of jobs or any jobs, is your ability as a as the leader as the CEO to navigate the complex world of policy making. And you can't have a partnership like you have with the state of Minnesota without having built relationships in the state capital. Uh, could you talk mm-hmm. a bit about? How to work within that state political construct, and your viewpoint on working with policymakers to get things moving in your favor, frankly, as an entrepreneur,
1: it has been a very enriching experience for me. I, you know, uh, uh, the person that called me back in 2017 to say that the company that was making modules for us was closing was a state senator mm-hmm. uh, who passed away a year ago. Uh, His name was David Tomasoni, and he was the state senator for the area where the factory is. You know, just a few months after uh, that uh, were the hearings on the 201 safeguard. Oh, the Trump, yeah, the trade and trade. Right, uh, the International Trade Commission. And I invited him. And at that point in time, the state Senate was Republican. So I invited the the, um, chair, uh, majority leader. Um, His name is Paul Gazelka, um, a Republican, and I went with both of them. And, you know, by being with them... You went to Washington. To Washington, D.C. for the International Trade Commission hearings in in early December of 2017. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. And I saw how they worked together and actually how they grew up together. uh, And how, you know, Thomas Honey being older was actually a bit of, of, of... a role model for Gazalka and, and, and he you know talk about that and how the families were friends because of that. And what I saw, you know, now is 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 a bit more straightforward in terms of time of timing and and, and speed of um, resolution on issues because both the House, the state House as well as the state senate are Democrats as well as the governor. So you might have heard that the state of Minnesota in the last um, uh, Legislative the, the Congress session mm-hmm. passed a, number, a record number of, of environmental uh, law. Right. Um, um, you know, Minnesota has pledged to be uh, net zero by 2040 as a state. Yeah. But what I have seen in the state in particular is that the bipartisan work works. Right. That there is a cohesion of all of every member of the House and every member of Senate to get things done for the betterment of the state. And that's amazing. And that's the way it should be everywhere, but sadly it's not, as we all know. But you know, in Minnesota, you know, if there is horse trading that is needed, it will happen and results will be obtained. And that is wonderful. My
0: assumption is that the proximity to Canada is important for you all as a Canadian company, uh, but obviously like big Asian companies, big European companies have manufacturing here in the US. So they choose States based on whichever one courts them the most. Mm-hmm. How important has that proximity to Canada been for you being based in Minnesota now?
1: You know, I always make the joke when, when you know, I'm Minnesota and, and, and think people say, you know, uh, it's great that you came up and I correct them. and says, no, we came down. Right. Uh, uh, Because there's too many people that actually go down to Minnesota, uh, you know, as as, you know, going south. Um, You know, we were called in. It wasn't a choice day one. And then we made the best out of it. You know, we have tried. and, And again, you know, there's there's we are installing more lines. and We're doubling down in our Minnesota bed in 2024 and beyond mm-hmm. um, and that has been if you want to after looking at other states we'll look at michigan we'll look at the carolinas and, and we'll look at you know florida where we we run a factory for a short period of time and literally run away from and you know we have the ability to work with the commissioner of uh, employment and economic development who reports to the governor in Minnesota, as well as to the Commissioner of Iron Range Rehabilitation Resources, which manages, you know, the Taconite Tax, which you know provides business um, and economic development grants and loans uh, in the area where we are up in the northeast. So we have a track record that allows us to to talk about what's next yeah. and what can the state provide as, as support for what is coming. And I think that is very important, because basically, we don't need to, to use brokers, we don't need to use lobbyists, we, we just talk for ourselves, based on what we've done.
0: I'm glad that you brought that up. And uh, we it would take a lot longer than we have to unpack if anybody listening is curious about what uh, sort of ha- to dig deeper into what it looks like to work with state commissioners. I did a three hour interview with Reagan Farr <laughs> from Silicon Ranch. And it's yes. a big a big piece of Reagan Farr's uh, story is how he was the state commissioner. (laughs) And they effectively did this on the other side and they brought, I think it was Hemlock or Vocker to Tennessee, um, convincing them that they would sell 300 megawatts of of solar and they've done something like 10X that. So um, it's fascinating that, uh, you know, folks try to sort of brute force a lot the Mm -hmm. the business case when um, subtle almost like Jedi-like understanding of policy can be a bigger lever in the business, right? Um, And you've shared two examples of how you've done that with Helian that I really respect and appreciate because you have followed, sort of followed source as the opportunity arises, you lean into it and you've looked for areas where as an entrepreneur, you can create barriers to entry or where you've gone through barriers to entry and then harness or leverage them right getting on an approved vendor list or as we refer to them in the industry avl is not easy and when you see that you've done something not easy and can double down on it it gives you a competitive advantage it is a sort of blue ocean
1: correct
0: yeah fascinating okay we're gonna switch uh switch gears here to um lessons learned and uh, and bring this party uh to towards the end but we are not done learning uh, I'd like to understand, you know, you've had a chance to work with and be in, uh, sort of influenced by folks from a variety of different uh, industries and realms, as mm-hmm. it were. Broadly, not just in the solar industry, who is impressive to you and what, what characterizes them thus? Like, talk, talk a bit about the folks that you admire.
1: You know, I worked my, my first 15 years for a multinational where work. everybody works 60 hours a week. And that's the norm, and people do that for decades with no end uh, until they retire. So I would say that um, I admire those that are able to, and, and I try to emulate mm. um, those that have a continuous motivation for um, um, you know the business they work for to improve. Mm-hmm. right and they they don 't accept no as an answer when when they know that you know a change has to happen um, so you know mm-hmm. there's, there's it's a faceless warrior right that that actually uh, are those that make things happen for for industries to get into new countries for uh, um uh, new companies to to come into uh, uh, the development of renewables, for example, right? So as as you know, I worked for the oil and gas for a, a lifetime, mm-hmm. and and you know I heard the Royal Bank of Canada deny our request for a credit line, saying no, you know, solar is too new. Says of course it's not mining, it's not the oil and gas right? We're not a Victorian industry, right? Uh, uh, but, you know, the JP Morgans and MacBook of America understood that and jumped on it. Uh, and they're the winners now because basically they they are providing money to our businesses. Well, you know, the, the legacy banks of the Democratic Republic of Congo of the North, as I call Canada because it's a resource country, don't Understand that. Um, So that is is, those are the ones, the people that I admire. Is those that actually persist, that tenacious on 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 achieving a goal, no matter what. I wonder,
0: in uh, in your vast experience, um, if there is any particular mentor that stands out to you, and were there lessons that that are the result of that, right? That have been imprinted on the way you think about business or life that you pass along it now as a as a leader
1: I would say a few one you know his name was uh, uh, Guillermo William Fitzsimmons uh, and he was a, a, a PhD in metallurgy and was my first boss and he was always very distracted to the point that you know he crossed uh coming out of his house to 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 do a chore um, the rail tracks not looking and the train running over and uh, uh, and that I was you know twenty five six years old when that happened and that taught me that doesn't matter how focused you are you need to look both ways and this is as silly as it is a black humor joke but you know it's 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 he was you know somebody i admired and as a you know phd student uh and he was my mentor and he was taken out of my life way too soon right and uh, uh Again, you know, he was my first role model, and I would say that you know, Dennis Turcotte, you know, my my former boss, he was the CEO of Steel. I, I I he hired me for the company turnaround, and we did quite well out of that. Um, and the company did quite well out of that, and and then you know he supported me uh, becoming a, a, part, a partner and a shareholder on Helian when I when I thought of of uh, starting this business. And you know I, I'm always working on a hundred things at the same time, but you know he told me that one, just focus on the two that will kill you I kill and will kill the you. company. Yeah, those those the, what are the things of the thousand things you are doing. What are the two that if you don't solve will kill you? I mean, kill you is is a way, is a metaphorical way of saying you know that will cause the the strongest problem. Mm. And solve those two, the rest can wait.
0: There's a there's a similar, um, a little bit inverse, um, but same directional, um, thing that I share a lot it comes from the book, The One Thing. Have you read the book, The One Thing? No. Okay, so the, oh, thesis... the one thing is the one thing. Yeah. So the, the thesis of the one thing, uh, and as with most books, it tells you the thesis in the first page and it spins 70, you know, 70 times more than that or whatever, 200 pages um, reinforcing the rule with examples. But the rule is this, what one thing can you do that by doing it makes all other things easier or unnecessary? Yeah. Right.
1: It's a similar, it's a, it's a similar way to think about it. Yeah. of course. And listen, and, 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 I mean, I, I have a, a, a new mentor of somebody that I met in the last few years. Um, his name is Dr. Baum, David Baum, B-A-U-M. And he's a psychologist. I mean, uh, uh, and actually, you know, I have used his work to do group therapy within mm-hmm. the management team of, of Helian, right? So yeah. we meet with him and basically... He helps us work through any and all issues that we have as humans, because that ultimately that's all we are, and that helps us understand why we have them, right? And 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 he is very famous worldwide. He worked in Northern Ireland at the end of the Troubles to bring the parties together. So he has worked with um, uh, many, you know, very well-known leaders to help them understand their own limitations and and so neurotic Jew myself right uh uh having that type of support is very important uh that, so that's Dr David
0: Baum B A U M is that right yes okay fascinating there's there are more than there's more than one Dr David Baum so i'm going to look for
1: yeah i'll Our... send you the link of, so we can share it, of, it. of his website um, He's uh, quite a uh is quite a character thank he's you. He's based in New hampshire thank you
0: I've been really, um, I would say, profoundly impacted. Surprisingly, uh, didn't expect with the level of intentionality, uh, both in business building and then in character building that you've infused into the business of Helian. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I think it takes a lot of courage uh, and insight to actually to to be comfortable with
1: sharing that by making ourselves vulnerable. Yeah, right. Uh, we can, you know, intentionally. Yeah. Right. We, we can make uh, our counterparts, particularly at work, feel comfortable with, with being themselves. And I That's think right. that is uh, uh, extremely important.
0: Martin, it takes an incredible amount of discipline to build the career that you've built, to build the kind of companies that you've built. Could you talk a bit about your personal habits? In particular, I know that you are very structured in the way that you organize your time. Can you walk me through that?
1: Certainly. Uh, so, you know, I, I have the advantage of... of having grown up kids right, when when i when they were little i did travel a lot um, and i'm reminded of that by my wife uh, most days because i always worked 7 days a week mm-hmm. and taking very little time off so i i you know i'm, I'm not exercising as much as i should i you know i'm I used to run three times a week. I used to do spin classes or go on 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 a bike ride, you know, three times a week. I yeah. r- r- rarely do one. Um, I do still go for walks uh, three times a day, and that's the you know the the fact that I have a dog and I'm looking off more often than not after two or three more. So this week we had three dogs in the house. Uh, one of of them is ours. So I go for a walk around seven thirty in the morning. Um, um, most days I work from home, so we go out at lunchtime, generally on the phone with someone, mm-hmm. uh, and in the evening around six or six thirty p.m. Uh, in the winter up here, at that time is 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 uh, pitch dark. It's the middle of the night already. So they have uh, we all were running with uh, luminescent vests, with LED vests. Uh, but, you know, I, I I try to and I have my schedule organized in a way that all meetings, uh, the internal meetings that happen um, every week, uh, they are organized for Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mm-hmm. I don't schedule meetings on Mondays and Fridays. I, you know, by midweek, Fridays will have meetings, but I never do meetings on Mondays um, because I keep that time to actually work. Yeah. To actually be able, because in days like Tuesdays, I, I'm just, you know, back to back from 8.30 until 6. Right. Um, and then, you know, I have to work. So uh, that makes for a very long day. So I, I, I always um, uh, do my best so that there, nothing is scheduled on those two days. Uh, right. And I'm able
0: to, to be productive. Do you take meetings, though, on Mondays and Fridays, given that you have? Here's what I find. Folks will say, Oh, I don't I have unstructured days on X or Y day and that's my deep work day. And you have to be incredibly disciplined to not allow creep. Yes. Right. Cause all of a sudden you've got this open day and somebody important says, Well, I can only make Tuesday work or I can only make Friday work.
1: Um, I end up doing uh, meetings on Monday afternoons and on okay. Friday afternoons, not in the morning. So I have them blocked. I mean, they, the main issue for me is that my schedule is visible within the company, right? right? So anybody that, that considers that I had to be in a meeting uh, then puts it in yeah. um, uh, and then, you know, it's, it, I'm in it. I don't have an assistant, a personal assistant, Nobody has a personal assistant in this company. We're all grown ups and can take care of our business. Mm. So uh, uh, that, you know, makes for the, if we call it, you know, lack of organization around who can schedule BD for whom. But, you know, it's an open door policy company where, you know, if somebody wants to have time to talk to me about something, it's always possible and it's always allowed.
0: Is there anything else about how you structure your week that you feel helps you get, um, leverage or get it, you know, get things done?
1: Um, I would say the fact that my wife is also a workaholic helps because, uh, 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 we, you know, we have dinner, uh, around, let's say seven 30, 8 or eight 30 PM. And then I work for another two hours and I know that she will be fine because she's also doing something. So, uh, 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 and that helps that my kids are, you know, grown up and, 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 and they live really far away. No. So, you uh, uh, know, we have our, you know, video meetings and video calls early in the morning and, and, and in the evening. But, yeah. you know, uh, I don't need to look after kids and that helps.
0: Yeah. I believe that readers are leaders and the inverse is also true. Leaders are readers. And in the modern era, I only kind of only listen to audiobooks. I in turn, I ingest yes, information exactly. that way. Yeah. So I, I consider reading as well audiobooks and even podcasts. Is there in, any particular source of information, books in particular, that I like to lean to? That you have gleaned, you know, life or leadership lessons from that you would share with our audience, um, or that you regularly gift to
1: others? You know, everything I read is fiction, simply because uh, um, You know, my my life is already complicated enough. When when um, the readers came up, my wife bought me one because I was, you know, a lot of time in planes and in airports and I was reading I burned through a few because they only had so many hours that they worked. Yep. Then iPads came up and I had one, I mean, for personal, for reading. And then I realized that it was in front of screens way too long and moved to to audiobooks, right? Yeah. So I, I'm actually hearing at least two audiobooks at a time because I put them on even uh, traveling, I mean, uh, uh, I'm always listening to something, and yeah. it's a way to disconnect as well. It helps you mm-hmm. do something else that is not work, yeah. and it's fiction. So uh, uh, you know, and I'm very bad for names, but uh, you know, there's a an a, a, a American writer that I, fo- I follow that is called Daniel Silva, and and he he writes the you know spy action thriller. Yeah. Hype uh, books um, that, you know, he just released a new one. So, you know, I'm finishing the, the collector. one. I'm, I'm uh, Yes. Um, um, those are, you know, his his books.
0: And So you try to get through Daniel Silva's books. Is he releasing like one a quarter? Some of these authors are incredible.
2: Help.
1: No, it's one a year. Okay. Mainly, it has been one a year. I've been following him for the last, I don't know, eight, eight nine years. Yeah. Uh, but I remember his name. But there are, you know, many books that um uh let me open the last one the one that i'm i'm listening i'm very up for names that's
0: totally fine i'm looking i'm gonna link to danielsilvabooks.com uh (laughs) listing of his books because i had never heard of him uh, but i would love to know if i if i only pick one daniel silva book because i i often like to um uh to do fiction i'll probably usually go to fiction once a quarter uh, my go-to, any book he releases, Neil Gaiman, is like absolutely going to read or, or listen to his books, American Gods, got me hooked. So, yeah, Dan- yes. I need
1: and you Yes, know, and, and uh, uh, you know, City of Angels, I mean, there's so many, but, you know, the one that I'm hearing right now is a Spanish book, but actually I'm listening to it in English because as okay. an Argentinian, having a narrator speaking in Sp- Spanish, Spanish from Spain is rather very annoying. um uh so you know the the book is called thomas nevinson but thomas like my son's name t-o-m-a-s uh nevinson n-e-v-i-n-s-o-n and the the author is called javier marias
0: is there something that uh, in particular about it that's captured your attention
1: that is different, that it transports me somewhere else, right? That, uh, that While, while I, I'm listening to it, uh, I'm not thinking about um, mm, you know, no. the approved or list of uh, Rabobank.
0: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll note that just having pulled it up, it's the final novel from Spain's most acclaimed writer about a charismatic exactly. Spanish half-English man who's recruited by British intelligence. So there you go. If you're looking for your next thriller, uh, Tomás Nevinson by Javier Marías. Okay. That is wonderful. I'm going to, uh, I'll drop in the link as well in our show notes. I have one question. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this in a, an unconventional way. The last several years have been, um, uh, tailwind for us. The IRA is the, the legislation we all hoped for. And, and, uh, few of us really believed it might come through, right? Build back better. You moved into the United States before any of this policy came to fruition. Uh, most, uh, most would say, great, this is all, um, you know, progressive propaganda. What happens when conservatives move in? What happens to the incentives? Uh, and what do we yes. do between? So I'd uh, like to hear as a final, right. final yeah. question.
1: And, and, you know, I I, I think through that, uh, thinking, okay, you know, we'll need to go through whatever we need to go through. And mm-hmm. uh, we went through the imposition of the 201 safeguard. Yeah. And we pivoted to become a U.S. manufacturer and we dealt with it. Uh, the reality of, of what happened during the four years of the Trump administration is that solar generation grew. That that installations grew year after year. So it wasn't a black period. It was an okay period. Mm-hmm. Right? So sure, now we are all preparing for an accelerated growth, turbo-engined mm-hmm. by the Inflation Reduction Act. But, you know, the, the solar is economically viable with or without? Because you know Germany is installing solar and it doesn't have the emission reduction act. However, they need the power and they don't have an alternative. But you know, otherwise they would be using Russian gas. Yeah. So go to any country on Earth and you will find that solar is mainly working as a power generation solution because capitalism works. Right, so is economically the best solution for the power generation conundrum. Yeah. So as, as, as we continue investing and setting up manufacturing facilities and creating jobs and helping the economic development of the nation, starting from the county, the, you know, the city, the county, the state, the, the, the country, we are proving that we are a, a, you know, a, an industrial force Similar to what, you know, after the Second World War, other, you know, other industries were particularly on, on steel manufacturing and, and such, right? And manufacturing products and making fridges and making cars and, and making planes. So we are becoming a sector that employs, that creates employment, that creates economic development. And politicians like that and need that, no matter in what side of the aisle they sit.
0: Yeah. Martin Bokcharuk is the founder and CEO of Helion, a US-based solar panel module manufacturer. And uh, I'm so grateful that we finally had a chance to connect and share with the world the, the true behind the scenes story of how Helion has not only survived, but thrived through the last decade plus of building an independent solar company. Thank you for sharing the story with us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for your interest. Woo, all right. Well, that
0: is a wrap on one heck of an interview. Thank you. Mil gracias, Martin, por todo. Thank you so much to Sofia uh, Fish Tank. Thank you to Martin for the gracious introduction to Hellion, to such an amazing entrepreneur. I, I have to say, and I hope that it could have been discerned from the interview. I I didn't know much, to be honest, about Helian. I certainly didn't know much about Martine. But this interview, more than most, maybe more than any in the Suncast canon, really changed my perspective on not only this entrepreneur, whom I didn't really know, but on the company that he created. There are so many different solar module manufacturers out there. And whether we like it or not, we create certain prejudice, certain perspective on one versus the other, mostly just out of ignorance. If you are in that camp like me and just didn't know enough about Helion to respect them, friend, I think that today that has changed. You've made it to the end of a truly epic interview, one that I enjoyed, one that I learned from, and one that I hope you would say the same about. But really, I'd love to know what were your biggest takeaways. In an interview this long, there are really so many that could be chosen. That's why we've tried to summarize them and leave you with some of the, not only takeaways, but links to the many different areas that I found information ahead of doing this interview myself, those can be found in the show notes, which I hope you'll take the time to peruse along with other ways that you can engage with us here in the SunCast Media family, from having one-on-one clarity calls with me to having our team help you tell your story in unique and meaningful content production. SunCast Media is here to help revolutionize the way we tell the clean energy story. Join us! Thank you for being here and joining me along this journey of learning more about Martin Bochtaruk. You can join us each and every week, twice a week. Our Tactical Tuesdays are vignettes, deep dives into some subject matter experts' insights into how the industry works and what you should know about it. Our Thursday episodes are executive profiles like this one, and they always give you insight into how the leaders. the front lines of the clean energy revolution envisioned, visualized, and brought to life the companies that we admire and trust. Last but not least, I'd like to thank the sponsors who help make this show possible so that each and every week you can listen with only paying your time and attention. You can find out more about those sponsors and how you could participate in this wonderful journey we call Suncast by clicking on the sponsors tab. Remember, you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solo warrior
2: it's half the battle